I guess Twitter basically countered and said DeVito's account was um, incomplete. Like there was, they were missing some sort of information for his account. Therefore, um, they're able to like de-verify him, if you want to call it that. The timing was was incredibly suspect because <laughs> it was right after he tweeted support for this major labor strike going on. There's really nothing that the people who own the Dabisco brand couldn't get out of the Silicon Valley folks, right? So if it was if it was about sending a message to Hollywood verified Twitter users that they needed to to toe the line with the cookie people, then there, there's really <laughs> no reason to suspect they wouldn't have the power to do so. That said, it 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 would seem like a pretty frivolous use of that power and authority. A lot of people have seen the DeSantis administration in Florida, God bless him, uh, gave schools a 48-hour window to reverse their mask mandates or risk uh, lose uh, lose funding. So, And that's, that's kind of in contrast, as we were talking about um, yesterday, about, um, I mean, I, I don't know if it's true, has, has Pritzker given schools sort of an ultimatum that if they defy the mask mandate, they lose funding. I mean, is there in Illinois, right. In comparison to governor DeSantis in Florida, uh, there've been several schools that have been put on a probation period for not enforcing the mask mandate. Mm -hmm. Um, there was one school in the Chicago area that had its accreditation pulled, um, just after suggesting that they would, that they might consider defying it, and they were hit pretty hard with penalties to begin with. And I just, I think that this just sort of more underlines where we're headed with this pandemic, right? Which is that, um, you know, there will be parts of the country that, you know, a decade from now will have outbreaks of COVID nineteen. Um, and there will be other parts of the country that everybody's getting boosters and wearing masks on a seasonal basis. And this is this is just going to be uh, where we're at, you know, with contradictions like, yeah. you know, one state where they're, uh, you know, giving schools an ultimatum to reverse a mask mandate. And in, in another state. Uh, they're taking actions against schools who are defying it, and and I think that we're we're just going to live in this hell and, until we don't. <laughs> I think it's pretty evident that a lot of kids are well, more kids I should say are going to be in pediatric ICUs uh, this fall semester, particularly in Florida. So I mean, it's I was just listening to NPR this morning, and as someone who lives in the South. I mean, that's all I've been hearing about working in, in the medical community is like just how rampant 
Um, this is this is getting through the younger populations. I mean, it's like Louisiana Children's Hospital, I think is in Baton Rouge, um, and Arkansas Children's, and I think the Children's Hospital in Memphis. Um, there, I mean, these these pediatric ICUs are full kids on mechanical ventilation, something that we did not see originally when this really took off. Um, and so I, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know people. Here's the thing. I've heard the argument that, oh, once this happens to, you know, all the, you know, once, once parents have to experience their kid getting deathly ill from, um, SARS-CoV-2, like, then they're going to take it, take it more seriously. And a part of me, like, gets what, gets that argument, but I still Millions of people are dead. Exactly. Around the world. Exactly. Half a million, in excess of half a million in the United States. Exactly. I don't, so I don't, I don't don't think think it's going to make that much of a difference. It's not going to. Like, people, some people might get up in arms about it, but the same people who are going to town hall meetings across the country with guns or you know or whatever and shouting anti-vaccine anti-mask rhetoric in these town halls and stuff like that well it's it's their gonna, their kid getting on a ventilator from covid's not going to change their mind ultimately covid won't end in anyone's particular part of the united states until employers mandate vaccines and short yeah. of employer mandated policy i don't suspect that there's much of anything that will end the pandemic short short of that it's here to stay it's here to circulate so yep. and just get just get stronger until that's my favorite thing is it's like you know all of the the like really bad forecasting that that didn't quite happen in the first wave or the second wave mm-hmm. or whatever we're we're just brewing a variant that's gonna that's gonna do those things yeah. but uh, at the same time, uh, the FDA has certified the Pfizer biotech vaccine, and the Biden administration is doing what we all suspected was coming, which is uh, mandating boosters or approving boosters, mandating. starting with <laughs> mandating boosters, approving boosters for the most vulnerable first, and then eventually we'll all be getting in line every eight months until the end of time to receive the most recent mRNA vaccine from the good folks in the big pharma community. Yep. Precisely. Uh, So another story I want to talk about, there was an article in the AP uh, that China is running its own potential black site in Dubai. The, The article kind of talks about how these sorts of sites are common in China. There was there was somebody there was Dubai had uh, some PR person out there in front assuring everyone that you know the local authorities there um, only arrest and detain foreign nationals you know in strict adherence with international law regarding those things Um, and it must be really hard or maybe not that hard at all. Uh, to be that guy who has to go out and pretend for the international press that half the real estate in any given Gulf nation isn't just 
black site for various intelligence communities. Like instead right. of a instead of an HOA in the Gulf states, they just have a, a non disclosure agreement. Yeah, that says you you know you that that the the CIA and the uh, and and the Chinese Communist Party uh, can't tell on each other for torturing in adjacent black sites. You know, and right? There's a there there'll be a, a strict code in the Gulf states that you know any any torture heard through the walls uh, has to be uh, hush hushed at the next UN Security Council meeting, right? There's been this story. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen it ran in the Guardian, for example. Um, they've they've been an outlet that's reported on this pretty commonly. That being the Chinese state uh, setting up what are effectively concentration camps and uh, housing Uyghur Muslims. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. I mean, obviously, you know, like is is the Biden administration going to antagonize? Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party over, over its own, you know, concentration camps and stuff like that. And the answer is no, <laughs> like, yeah. no. They're they're it's 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 the same reason. Like Trump never did any, anything too crazy beyond his rhetoric, you know, for saying, "Oh, China and the Chinese flu" and stuff like that. So because because at the end of the day, the empire-ending conflict isn't withdrawing from afghanistan but it's yeah. the the u.s is protecting moment. its capital when it outsourced all of its capital and labor well, to, and, to china and at some point the u.s is going to fight likely a, a proxy conflict with some chinese funded agent and 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 we'll lose to them and that and that will be that will be decisive and i think yeah. regardless of of whatever uh you know brave that, loss the biden administration has taken they're ultimately not going to uh yeah. you know be the ones who take who take the final decisive l for american empire totally. you know i'm in the i'm in the camp that says that you know really between the republican party and the democrats uh regarding foreign policy we're really offered you know kind of two choices right there's sort of the the joe biden version of things where we um just sort of forget gradually everything and decide to just you know let the sun set on us while we remember fondly how well our dads drove their big cars right and then there's the sort of republican you know donald trump version of the end of it all where we insist no no actually we can still drive the car give us the fucking keys and we go out in a flaming blaze of glory <laughs> and and i i think that these are really the, the two poles of u.s foreign policy thought at this point in the 21st century Uh, as we were just mentioning the Guardian, they had an article in a COINTELPRO-esque move. Uh, the U.S. government targeted Black Lives Matter activists in an effort to disrupt the movements. So this is specifically talking about after um, the killing of George Floyd. Um, I think I recall also, it may have been The Intercept that reported on this, but I mean, the, the uh, I think it was the FBI. Uh, was flying drones over over these uh, 
these protests around the country, basically. And uh, committing acts of lots of domestic surveillance of right. social movements as, as they've done since the beginning of their inception. So, Right. And lots of tactics of law enforcement, like in particular, the sort of like citywide surveillance tactic, which mm-hmm. um, is not usually considered legal or at least not court admissible here to like yeah. surveil an entire city and then build a case out of whatever you've you've surveilled um it is a tactic that is often used in places like colombia right to yeah. track down yeah. drug lords where uh we have you know extra legal extradition policies with whatever puppet client state mm-hmm. is sanctioning that type of surveillance but yeah, yeah, to see it deployed on American streets is is different. Um, I can tell you as as somebody who, um, you know, <laughs> was in the in the middle of 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 two police lines that were, uh, you know, prepared to to use a tactic called kettling last you know last year and and all these sorts of things. I don't think it surprises anybody who who sort of experienced what. Uh, what the tactics were on the street last year. But I want to take it a step further and point out that these tactics are even more than COINTELPRO-esque. I mean, these are almost the exact tactics which were deployed against, you know, the literal Black Panthers yeah. um, in the 60s. Just the general I, Black liberation right. movement. Right. Decades ago. And so. that, that, you know, it the, the report that has been written on these tactics, right, um, when as far as to say that, you know, that these are the same techniques that were used to disrupt the work of the Black Panther Party and yeah. other organizations fighting for black liberation. And I think that yeah. um, I think that that's a, a significant, you know, we've made that argument on this show before, right, mm-hmm. that these tactics of the mid 20th century are still with us today and they're alive you know not just in the case of policing vulnerable marginal marginal muslim men but also still being deployed against the Mm -hmm. struggle for black liberation yeah i think it's interesting sort of the more i think about it it's the level of surveillance for these movements you know it still occurs kind of in the same sort of like quantity or however you want to say it but to me there's like an element of more kind of stealthiness like nowadays in modern times because nowadays instead of being out in the open you know trying to strong arm protesters and put them down and stuff like that now you know they're they're doing it from the air and using highly sophisticated technology to to monitor these movements and stuff like that and to me it seems like it it has potential to go a lot more unnoticed than it may have in the sixties and seventies and that sort of thing. So I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Well, and I think that the most, the, the only real notable distinction is that only a little over half of the people identified in these cases were, uh, were black. Right. (laughs) I think, I think that if any, if anything's, you know, changed, it's, it's just that, um, you know, the, the reason that these tactics were so acceptable to be mm-hmm. used domestically were because, um, you know, they were done, they were used with the consent of the white majority. Yeah. And I think that, yeah. it, you know, it, there's increasingly less cover 
for for that type of behavior in no small part because 48% of the folks who had these tactics applied to them were were white folks right um yeah. and and yet and yet regardless of where public opinion moves the uh, capacity of the state to do this type of thing is 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 largely un, undeterred well should we briefly mention um Liz Cheney. Yeah, I think it's a good transition to our reading series this week to, to talk about the audacity of Liz Cheney. The the audacity of writing articles in the nation criticizing the Biden administration for its withdrawal from the Taliban while somewhere in your father's will you have dividends uh from Halliburton coming your way upon his eventual death mm-hmm. but but yes yeah liz cheney this week uh had the gall to assign blame to the biden administration for uh anything happening in afghanistan but in this case particularly the images we've seen of the past week of the taliban sweeping through the nation after 20 years of a senseless war sculpted by the sneer of her uh, of her father dick cheney i just it's almost staggering that she even said something like this because i i really feel like the majority of the people on like the left in the united states even a vast majority of independents do not have a very high opinion of dick cheney really really i mean i i know like a lot of conservatives that don't like Dick Cheney. <laughs> so I don't know. I just, I think it's a really, really weird thing to say. And, um, well, I think Liz Cheney is in sort of like the, um, the Megan McCain. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Grift where it's like part of the thing is that, um, liberals know they're supposed to hate her. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so, yeah. And so if you're the nation, you know, you gotta, you gotta cover this stuff, right? Because because this 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 article <laughs> that that appeared in the Nation that's reporting on Liz Cheney's Twitter activity um, is just guaranteed uh, to drive internet traffic all week, and and Liz Cheney made the tweet because of it. Right. Yeah. Because there's probably she probably got to write like the defense of this argument for like ten thousand dollars and like, uh, you know, the Atlantic or the Federalist or something Um, (laughs) like like it's like, you know, if you're Liz Cheney, it's like you tweet this thing. And by the end of the week, you have, you know, fifty thousand dollars in opinion pieces to write or something. Next week, she'll be saying Um, um, just like what's her face on the Federalist that. Joe Biden's possessed by a demon and he That's right. he his his demonic presence is is what is responsible for our withdrawal from uh the nation building in Africa or in in Afghanistan so so that transitions us nicely to our reading series for this week where we're going to talk a little bit well we're just going to wade into the collective brain rot and pearl clutching of the media class as it continues to languish in the blowback of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. But 
everyone who has their eye on the ball for this thing understands that the events of the last week in Afghanistan signal, at least potentially, a significant shift in the posture of the U.S. toward the places at the edge of its imperial control. Planners and politicians in the U.S. have, for over a decade, desired a smaller scope for their imperial project. The maximalist view of American power held by Cheney, Rumsfeld, and other PNAC members riding shotgun at the beginning of the war on terror have for even longer been out of favor in Washington. Mm -hmm. The only problem was that there wasn't a president willing to take that big L for the team. And even though Bush, Obama, and Trump all had their own political reasons for staying in Afghanistan, this is more than just another policy position. The consequences of reducing the scope of U.S. imperial projects are immense, and immense on the scale of world history. Because this is how empires end. They're negotiated down gradually. The capacity to project power is reduced and the elite ideology gradually consigns itself to living off the ever-diminishing largesse of generations past. And this is well understood by the media class, who this week began to contemplate the imperial implications for forfeiting this part of the strategic, uh, strategic zone to the other powers in the region, especially China. The New York Times invited a retired colonel from the Chinese People's Liberation Army, right? So that's the the Chinese Communist Party's army, right? So they invited a colonel from the PLA um, who's currently a senior fellow at a Center for International Security and Strategy in Beijing, right? To write an op-ed in the New York Times about the posture of China and the reaction of China towards the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the results are pretty interesting, Um, you know, especially just imagining, you know, uh, what it would be like, you know, to, to be the person who had to write, you know, for this old rag in the United States, a propaganda piece, um, you know, to be read by only the biggest freaks and losers in the American <laughs> foreign policy apparatus. So um, with that short straw, we enter Zhao Bo, who is the, as we noted, retired Chinese PLA colonel who drew the short straw in Beijing this week. So. Are they ever truly retired at this point? <laughs> so. I love I love the implication that in China, there are like, like, retired military people taking like pseudo private sector jobs the same way they're like opposite number in the United States would, but it's just ostensibly some policy center that's run by the Chinese state. Yeah. And, but it's like, it's the same job. It's like, it, we have these people. It's just that like, there's actual private yeah, just money a paying to like make yeah. work. Yeah. 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 But it, I just, I thought I was, as I was trying to sort of parse through what the hell this op-ed was, I was sort of having to also take on board, you know, the fact that the Chinese state has like created a, um, a, a space in its economy to like make work for retired military colonels the same way we have under, under private sector capitalism. Yeah. And I thought that was just thrilled to, to hear that there's something for these people to do. Right. So this is an op-ed, as we said, titled In Afghanistan, 
China is ready to step into the void. And it so eloquently begins with, quote, The speed and scope of the Taliban's takeover in Afghanistan have prompted introspection in the West over what went wrong and how. After billions of dollars spent on a 20-year war effort, it could all end uh, so ignominiously. China, though, is looking forward. It is ready to step into the void left by the hasty U.S. retreat to seize a golden opportunity. Right, yeah. A, A regional power taking an interest in the stability of the traditional punching bag of the world hegemon after 20 years of war. Let's see. Let's see how this goes. And with the U.S. withdrawal, Beijing can offer uh, what Kabul needs most, uh, political impartiality uh, and economic investment. Afghanistan, in turn, has what China uh, most prizes, opportunities in infrastructure and industry building, areas in which China's capabilities are arguably unmatched and access to $1 trillion in untapped mineral deposits, including uh, critical industrial metals such as lithium, iron, copper, and cobalt. Imagine that. Economic investment and political impartiality. That's, a, that's coming as opposed to what we've been doing for the past 20 years, raining death from the sky, ballooning opium production, and installing every local pedophile sympathetic to U.S. strategic interests. Cole continues saying, uh, Chinese companies have a reputation for investing in less stable countries if it means they can reap the rewards. That doesn't always happen so smoothly, but China has patience. Although the presence of U.S. troops went some way uh, toward preventing armed groups from using Afghanistan as a haven, their exit also means that a 20-year war with the Taliban has ended. Therefore, the barriers for Chinese investment on a large scale are removed. The unmitigated horror. Who could imagine? And becoming an influential player in Afghanistan also means that Beijing is better positioned to prevent what it considers anti-Chinese groups from gaining a foothold in the country. A primary concern of China is the East uh, Turkestan Islamic Movement. (laughs) According to a Chinese uh, government report, the group had early roots in Afghanistan. That's so brutal. Like, it's like... Here's here's a, a like educated professional who's like aware of the media coverage in the United States about like the uh you know repression of the Uyghur ethnic minority and the you know concentration camps operated in western China and 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 you know and and you're somebody who understands all that and then you draw the short straw in Beijing that says that you have to write the CCC this pardon me, that says that you have to write the CCP propaganda for the New York Times this week. I mean, if it were me, right? If I had if I was a retired PLA colonel in some policy institute in Beijing, I would scrub the shit out of every toilet in the place just so I didn't have to spend the half an hour shitting out this article <laughs> for the fucking old lady in New York. Anyway, continue. Finally, Even though the United States is leaving, there is an opportunity for Beijing and Washington to work together for a stable Afghanistan. China and the United States, despite their differences, have enjoyed some cooperation in Afghanistan already. For example, jointly training diplomats and technicians. Neither country wishes to see Afghanistan slide into a civil war. 
both of them support a political solution that is Afghan-led and Afghan-owned. Therefore, Afghanistan provides an area for the two competing giants to find some common cause. Right. Yeah, neither side uh, wants to see Afghanistan slide into a civil war, except, of course, all of the liberals baying on Twitter for the Afghan men to fight to protect their women. Right. I mean, keep, keep in mind that these are these are folks who, after the Soviets left, were at civil war with each other for for years and years and years. The, the, the Afghan the people of Afghanistan understand in a way that the media class calling for them to protect their women never could the implications of civil war in that country. Right. Something which, you know, some East Coast prep school educated columnist and with a make work job and you know media could never understand which is what the actual implications of civil war would be like but 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 we'll we'll go ahead and forgive Zhao and just assume that he writing from the Beijing perspective would assume that people in the United States aren't in favor of civil war in Afghanistan but I, I think that remains to be seen from the media coverage of the last week and Afghanistan has long been considered a graveyard for conquerors. Alexander the Great, the British Empire, the Soviet Union, and now the United States. Now China enters, armed not with bombs, but with construction blueprints and a chance to prove the curse can be broken. Oof. I, I got to be honest with you. I am really, really fucking tired of this take. Right. Alexander's Alexander the Great's empire did not end in Afghanistan. It it started there. It it reached its greatest extent in Afghanistan. And and neither did the British Empire. They got wrecked in the Khyber Pass like 50 years before the fucking Berlin Conference. The the British Empire didn't end until they literally spent half a century liquidating all of the feudal and industrial capital assets and borrowing money from the Americans to fight the Germans. And to even mention the Soviet Union in this conversation is fucking hilarious. Afghanistan was a regional interest for Moscow, one of the few they pursued in the entire Cold War. Well, we were over here pretending that they had a comparable imperial ambition to ours. It it remains to be seen what's going to happen to the US empire here, which is perfectly capable of retreating for decades behind a veneer of isolationism until the next time there's a crisis to be manipulated to gin the American people into war. But if I remember, if I read one more member of the media class call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires, like like they paid attention to his, in history class, I'm going to fucking lose it. Well said. Well said. All right. So next... But, but so so yeah so we get this we get this like um like introspection from the new york times opinion editor mm-hmm. in reaction to uh to just letting <laughs> the chinese people liberation army just like write a, a press release in, in the pages of the new york times um and there was a little bit of like self-consciousness from yara bayumi uh who wrote in in response to uh, Jabo's article that quote the Taliban are on a PR offensive to try to show that they're a legitimate representative gro- governing power that wants to have good relations with its neighbors. The group has sought its richest neighbor, China, in particular, to emphasize that message. Bayumi continues, "I hope Times readers oh. will appreciate Zhao's interesting perspective on the shifting power dynamics in a region that the United States has been so deeply invested in." 
It's rare that the Times provides a platform for a Chinese military insider. But Zhao has a unique vantage point to clarify how Beijing is positioning itself in Afghanistan. You know, <laughs> I can't. I like literally cannot with this stuff. <laughs> I just, I just, it's like, it's like, okay, so it's like, who it's eats like the shit up? Like, that's, that's what I want to know. <laughs> you work for a media outlet that sold this conflict 20 years ago oh. and is now. You know, just like handing over column space to like the the next architect of that of like the the new regime in Afghanistan. If if we were in the if we were in China's position, right, and China were retreating from a decades long war or something, the New York Times would have the same opinion piece written from the U.S. perspective, and the content would, would not be different at all. The content would be absolutely the same. We would be emphasizing that the United States uses softer powers like investment and political impartiality and all of these sorts of things. But when I said we got this. What we're going to get into here, what we have next are is the work from Thomas Friedman and uh, mm. David Frum from the last week um, to really make the vein in the top of my head twitch uh, this week. So our first article is from Thomas Friedman and um, Friedman, the the opinion piece was titled three people I would interview about Afghanistan. Right. And in case you don't remember or weren't alive (laughs) to remember at the time, um, Thomas Friedman was one of the guys that built their career off of selling this conflict, right? Uh, Friedman's career was much less significant before the war on terror than it was after, right? And part of it was uh, because he uh, sold this conflict to the American people 20 years ago. So one of the one of the things that Thomas Friedman does because he's an artist, right? Um, is that sometimes in his columns, he'll do this thing where he pretends to stick his clubbed fingers up the ass of a historical figure and work their mouths like a puppet. It's one of the, the true, one of, one of the few pure pleasures out there in the world of reading right-wing columnists. And uh, we, have, we have one of those because, because Friedman did it for us this week. I think he just disassociated from the shame of being one of the arch peddlers of this conflict. Yeah. I mean, Friedman basically made a career out of being a reasonable foreign policy guy who gave liberals shelter for Bush era warmongering. He also endorsed the killing of Lebanese civilians by Israeli airstrikes as a way to, uh, quote, educate uh, their opponents. Anyway, here's Friedman pretending to be Lyndon Johnson, Xi Jinping, and a former Afghani ruler. Anything to avoid being Thomas Friedman on a week like this. Okay. So, have you looked at this? Yeah, I've looked through this. This is some crazy shit. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's, dude, it's really, it, it, it kind of weirded me out reading it. Like... Keep in mind, this is something he just does. Like he just does this from time to time. Yeah, it's really strange. And like, I think the 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 LBJ thing is what really weirded me out. That was what I was kind of unnerved by as I as I kind of read through this a little bit. 
So, I mean, I'll be honest, it kind of scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so just for the listeners, keep in mind, this is written like in the form of like a script or a screenplay, right? Where, where Friedman has written lines for himself and then other lines that are also just him, but in the voice of a historical figure. And, and you, you, you really got to take these. In. So, so first, first Friedman is conversing with uh, Lyndon Johnson, oh. president Johnson. What did you think of Joe Biden's speech about quitting Afghanistan? I listened to it, and I have to say that I choked up. If I only had the guts to give that speech on April 7th, 1965, about America's involvement in Vietnam, the war that I inherited and then expanded with that speech, promise me one thing, you won't link to that speech. Sorry, Mr. President, I already did. Yes, Mr. Friedman, I wish I had uh, said what, uh, what Biden did and what his predecessors never would. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan troops will not? But what jo- what Johnson actually would have thought of Joe's speech was, who is this pussy? Anyway, have you seen my dick yet today? <laughs> uh... And I just want to be clear, I'm not... I'm not like just making a cheap dick joke here, but President Lyndon B. Johnson would was known to show his his named penis to colleagues. Like mm-hmm. I'm not I'm just telling you that he would he would have he would have called Joe Biden a pussy and then he would have showed jumbo to somebody. That's what Lyndon Johnson would have actually done. Anyway. Oh, I didn't realize uh, it was jumbo. <laughs> oh that's right. He named it. And he told people about it. And it's historical record what Lyndon B. Johnson's penis was named. Anyway, Friedman continues, this time now conversing with a hypothetical President Xi Jinping. Okay, so so Friedman writes, now as President Xi Jinping, President Xi, what do you think of all the American commentators proclaiming China a winner from Biden's withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan? Oh my, these are what we call useful idiots. What planet are these people living on? We had a perfect situation going before Biden uh, came along. America was hemorrhaging lives, money, energy, and focus in Afghanistan. And its presence was making the country just safe enough for Chinese multinationals to exploit. So Friedman Friedman presses (laughs) Xi himself further. He asks... A hypothetical Xi Jinping. What about the Taliban? The Taliban? You think that we trust them? Have you noticed what their brothers and the Pakistani Taliban have been doing to our investments in Pakistan? Pakistan cannot even keep us safe from its own Taliban and Balak separatists in their own country. And we own Pakistan. And don't even get me started on how the Taliban victory would inspire our Uyghur Muslims. Joe, Joe, what did you do to us, Joe? You should have listened to your foreign policy experts and stayed in Afghanistan. The last thing we want is you refocusing all of America's resources and energy on competing with us for the industries of the 21st century instead of chasing the Taliban around the Hindu Kush. But this is where we get the icing on the cake. And, and I'm, I'm going to let... I'm going to kind of let let this section run a little bit here. And I want you to, to consider that this is written by someone who who sold this conflict 20 years ago, right? And so this is Thomas Friedman now in the voice of Mohammed Zahir Shah, one of the last people to have 
ruled Afghanistan with any stability, right? Um, Friedman writes, uh, Mohammed Zahir Shah was the last king of Afghanistan who ruled from 1933 until he was deposed by his brother-in-law in 1973, triggering nearly a half century of coups, wars, and invasions. He was the last of a 226-year dynasty of Pashtun monarchs to rule Afghanistan. Your Highness, what do you think of Biden's decision to just quit Afghanistan and of the Taliban takeover? The Taliban represent only one element in our mosaic, Pashtun Sunni Islamism, uh, since they were ousted by the Americans 20 years ago. All they have been thinking about is how to again own the Afghanistan they lost, not how to govern anew uh, the Afghanistan that exists today. Tribes in this part of the world, Mr. Friedman, have a saying. Me and my brother against my cousin. Me and my brother and my cousin against the outsider. And then there's the money. The American occupation was to Afghanistan what oil is to Saudi Arabia. You were like an oil well that didn't dry up. But now that you're gone, so is all that income to run the government and pay salaries. How are the Taliban going to replace it? You can smuggle only so many drugs to Europe. Sure, the Chinese will throw them some crumbs to keep them away from the Uyghurs. But there are no more sucker superpowers out there that want to come in and run this place because they all now know that all they'll win is a bill. But if the Taliban try to keep power all by themselves with no cousins, watch out. The country will eventually resist it and the Taliban will crack down harder. And Afghanistan will not implode, it will explode. It will break up into different regions and hemorrhage refugees and instability. It will be very ugly. And American Biden will be blamed for the chaos. But America will also be gone. Afghanistan then will be a huge problem for its neighbors, particularly uh, Pakistan, China, Russia, and Iran. Maybe if Friedman would have been able to sit down with the Mohammed Zahir of his imagination 20 years ago, we wouldn't even be in this mess. Mm -hmm. For most of you with the sickness, David Frum won't need any introduction. From was the Bush White House speechwriter in 2001 and 2002. And despite um, definitely belonging in some sort of jail cell and as the result of some international court proceeding in Central Europe, um, From is instead pulling down six figures writing pieces like the one we're about to read today in The Atlantic. Uh, entitled The One Thing That Could Have Changed the War in Afghanistan. He writes, uh, Bin Laden's survival doomed any idea of pivoting back to domestic concerns without a kill or capture of Bin Laden to show. The swift overthrow of the Taliban government seemed very much a consolation prize. The road opened to the Iraq War. Okay. so. This dude was in the West Wing on September 12th when Donald Rumsfeld was telling everybody in the soon-to-be war cabinet to sweep it all up, things related and not, right? To make it, it seem like Iraq, which had more valuable military targets and um, a history of having sort of shamed the people who had been in the H.W. Bush White House. Here is David Frum presenting the failure to get bin Laden in the Torobora Mountains in 2001 as the reason 
that the Iraq war happened. And we should appreciate that lying on this scale, right, is a legitimate professional credential in this society, Mm -hmm. right? That you could be 20 years downstream of being the propagandist that lied us to these wars and that you could just write that it was the fact that we didn't get bin Laden at Tora Bora that opened the road to Iraq is proof that regardless of the criminals that might exist in other totalitarian states, less open societies, right? That, that we still have the worst. Again, this is only one man's opinion, but I don't yeah, believe... Yeah, the fucking speechwriter's opinion. <laughs> but I don't believe Bush was yet committed to a ground war against Saddam Hussein when he delivered his Axis of Evil speech in January 2002. That speech identified Iraq's weapons potential as a deadly, serious security threat. It said the same of Iran's and North Korea's weapons potential, and Bush had no intention of fighting either of them. There were and are many ways to address weapons potential. You wrote the speech. You wrote the fucking speech. What What do you mean? I don't believe Bush was yet committed to war. The war cabinet had like four guys on it who were who knew going into office that they wanted the fucking thing. Ho- holy cow. Yet in the year after that speech, the decision for war was coalesced. Uh, something had to be done against Islamic terrorism that was not Afghanistan. The Iraq war became that something. A strange dichotomy split the U.S. foreign policy elite. Prominent figures in the Bush administration, uh, Vice President Cheney, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, PNAC, just say PNAC, wished fiercely to escape Afghanistan. This was, or this wish was partly because of their determination to finish off Saddam Hussein, but it was also a policy preference in its own right. For what little it's worth, that's how I personally felt at this time. However steep the odds against a stable future for Iraq, that urbanized and uh, literate country was a more, that urbanized and literate country, sorry, was a more promising terrain for U.S. strategic goals than hopeless Afghanistan. So so what is the fucking point of this article then? The, the war in Afghanistan had to go on for as long as there was still strategic and political ground to be made in the eyes of the project for a new American century. That. Have you ever read the report on what happened at fucking Tora Bora? Which, which, by the way, that is what Frum is alluding to here in this article, by the way, is Tora Bora in 2001, the day that Al-Qaeda escaped across the border into Pakistan. It was Donald Rumsfeld who refused to order the extra troops required to launch the assault that would have captured bin Laden that day in December of 2001. And I'm not just making this up. A congressional report from 2009, which I have right here, says, quote, the decision not to deploy American forces to go after bin Laden or block his escape was made rooms down from David Frum in December of 2001 in the Bush White House by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and his top commander, General Tommy Franks, the architects of the unconventional Afghan battle plan known as Operation Enduring Freedom. Rumsfeld said at the time that he was concerned that too many U.S. troops in Afghanistan would create an anti-American backlash and fuel a widespread insurgency. Can you imagine? 
reversing the recent American military orthodoxy known as the Powell Doctrine. The Afghan model emphasized minimizing the U.S. presence by relying on small, highly mobile teams of special operations troops and CIA paramilitary operatives working with the Afghan opposition. Even when his own commanders and senior intelligence officials in Afghanistan and Washington argued for dispatching more U.S. troops, Franks refused to deviate from the plan, right? So let's introduce some facts into this article David Frum is writing about how if we would have just gotten bin Laden on that day in 2001, none of this would have happened. No, there were specific strategic and political reasons why we did not get Osama bin Laden on that day. And that's because Donald Rumsfeld had not successfully gotten us into a war in Iraq yet. If we'd captured bin Laden on that day, Frum's probably right. We wouldn't have ended up in that fucking war. But your boy went out and lied for it in 2002 to make sure it happened. And that's who's writing this thing in 2021, telling us, oh, well, if only the people I'd worked for had actually wanted to capture Osama bin Laden, we wouldn't have had to do the thing in Iraq. We wouldn't have had to do this 20-year quagmire. Well, maybe somebody with a moral conscience wouldn't have found themselves writing speeches for these types of people. Maybe the most important lesson to take from the outcome in Afghanistan is the steep uh, strategic cost of America's fierce uh, partisan polarization. Decisions in Afghanistan by Republicans and Democrats alike were driven much more by domestic political competition than by realities inside Afghanistan. George W. Bush couldn't afford to quit Afghanistan when he should have early in 2002. (laughs) <laughs> John Kerry and Barack Obama were compelled to overpromise about Afghanistan despite their own misgivings. Donald Trump backdated a debacle because he wanted a seemingly cheap win for 2020. And you know what? I think Frum is actually right here that only a giant career loser, guaranteed one term president like Joe Biden could have been willing to take this L, right? Bush couldn't do it because it was his war, right? Barack Obama is so concerned about how people think of him and being a celebrity that he literally didn't invite his his political friends to this party to to his birthday party this past year. Like it was just it was just Jay Z and and everybody from Hollywood and and fucking uh, what's his face Axelrod fucking Axelrod didn't even get invited to Obama's uh, uh. birthday this year. Right? is so concerned about what people think of him, right? That he couldn't even get us out of Afghanistan, right? Which is the same petty bitch shit that kept Donald Trump from pulling us out before 2020, despite the fact that he'd basically run on it, but was told it was going to look like this, right? That it was going to look like what this last week has looked like. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't do it to avoid being seen to take a take a political loss. But Joe Biden, right? The cuck of the credit card companies in Delaware is going to take this L for the American empire because no one else could. Well, of course. The brave lives lost in Afghanistan, the money squandered there, those will haunt American society for a long time, but the new possibilities open for the United States. The freedom of action recovered, the future waste now prevented, those will be realities too. The material, economic, financial, and moral assets that make America strong. The United States still possesses all of those. The domestic political dysfunction that leads to politics instead of policy. That, and not the iconography of helicopters out of Kabul, 
that's the weakness now to overcome. It's okay, team. We'll get them next week. We're still the heroes we think we are. And nothing those bullies we've been murdering for two decades can say or do to change that as long as you believe it in your heart. War criminals on three. One, two, three. PNAC. Right? Yeah, it's 100% what it is. But I, I think it's, you know, we're, we just read um, some really crazy shit from The Atlantic and The New York Times. Like, two major liberal publications but also chief architects but they're and they're also chief architects of this conflict right yeah that it it wasn't just the neocons with the project for the new american century right it was it was the new york times and the atlantic and 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 this media staggering to see the backtrack in 2021 from these these outlets right we're just supposed to forget while 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 the blood of Afghani women dries on their hands, mm-hmm. we're just supposed to to let them have have this news cycle to to like decompress from yeah. from having yeah. killed all those people. What's what's so funny to me is that like after well, during and you know, shortly after Donald Trump's presidency, you know, we heralded the New York Times and the Atlantic as these bastions of journalism. <laughs> democracy and, dies and in democracy. And, right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, cause they were the ones who had to warn us about how dangerous Donald Trump was. And so like, you know, it's, I don't know. I just, I think it's a, it's a staggering contrast to see these outlets now doing this very thing. And I don't know. And just, it's weird. It's a weird thing to me. Yeah. Well, next week on COINTELPRO, we're going to be back with an interview with Illinois Institute of Technology History Chair Margaret Power to discuss variously the right in the United States and its various contradictions. Um, and then in a couple of other weeks, we're going to sit down again with Margaret Power. Uh, to talk about the anniversary of the military coup in Chile from September 11th, 1973. Uh, We're going to talk about feminism, womanhood in Chile, and the ways in which it was consolidated by the right to support the overthrow of the Salvador Allende regime. So you'll want to be around for that next week on COINTELPRO. This is an independently produced podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at COINTELPROPOD and support more of our work on our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes and in our Twitter bio. We'll see you next week on COINTELPRO.